Thank you, Joshua. Let's open our Bibles together, please, to 102nd Psalm. I'm beginning today a series for this Christmas season entitled The Carols of the Christ. In this series, we're going to explore some of the texts from the Bible's hymnal, that is, the book of Psalms, which point to the Messiah. Uh, the references that we will look at, these prophecies that we call messianic, will be authenticated by the New Testament reference to them. Today we look at Psalm 102, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. Of old thou didst form or found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing thou wilt change them, and they will be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. Now if you'll turn to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 1, we'll see where the Holy Spirit authenticates the fact that this text that I've read refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish rabbis did not consider Psalm 102 to be a messianic psalm, but the Holy Spirit shows us, in fact, that that is the case. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, And when he, that is God the Father, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and now allow your eyes to drop down to verse 10, Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see the Savior in these texts, these words that we have read. And having seen him, may he be exalted in our eyes. May our hearts be drawn to him in faith and love and devotion. In Jesus' name, amen. The Carols of the Christ. The word Christ comes from the Greek language and the word Christos. That word in the Greek is equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah, as we say. The word Messiah, or the word Christ, simply means the anointed one. Jewish priests and kings and prophets were all said to be anointed. But the superlative use of this idea of the anointed one is reserved for the promised, long-anticipated deliverer of Israel. We recognize in light of the New Testament that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, that deliverer and savior of Israel. Thus he is called Jesus Christ. Christ, you see, is his title. He is Jesus, the anointed one. Now the psalm that we're looking at today has an inscription or an introduction. And you will notice that it says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint 
and pours out his complaint before the Lord. The psalm is anonymous, although some attribute it to David, and that may be the case. But whoever wrote it, he sees himself as one who is afflicted, and he offers to God his supplication, his complaint, as it says here, and he expresses his faith in God. He acknowledges that his days are frail, and even suggests that God may have shortened his days in some respect. You will see in the first 11 verses how he explains his situation and his life is passing away before him. He is in pain of soul as well as body. But beginning in verse 12 he says, But thou, O Lord, dost abide forever and thy name to all generations. And then he moves through his prayer until he comes to the text that we have read for this morning. To Jesus Christ, as we see in the book of Hebrews, to Jesus Christ is attributed this text. To him is attributed the nature of one who is God. And this morning I want to explore that idea as we find it revealed to us in these simple verses that to Jesus Christ is attributed the nature of one who is deity himself. In the first place, I want you to notice that Christ stands apart from the creation. He existed before the creation. It says, in the beginning he existed. From of old thou didst form the earth. Jesus Christ is preexistent. That is, he subsisted before the time, space, and matter universe came into being. As the prophet Micah would write, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. An amazing statement that Micah makes prophetically to the people of Israel. He says that the one who will be born as a ruler in little insignificant Bethlehem is the one whose goings forth have been from long ago, even from days of eternity. That is, before there was time says Micah. This one existed, and one day, Bethlehem, he will come forth from you. The Apostle John writes in the New Testament, in his Gospel, the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is a name, a title for Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word. He goes on to say, he was in the beginning with God. That is, when God spoke everything into existence, in the beginning, he, Jesus, the Word, the Messiah, already was. My point is that he stands apart from the creation. 
Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things. Therefore, He Himself is not among those things created. In fact, He was the agent of creation. In the beginning, it was by Him that all things came into existence. As John says in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, all things came into being through Him, by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, the fingerprints of the Christ are all over His creation. Paul again says in Colossians, By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. And so the Christ stands apart from His creation. He founded the earth. He put into place the natural laws making life possible. The heavens are the work of thy hands, the Father says to the Son. The heavens are the work of thy hands. That is, you have arranged the physical, the astronomical principles that keep the world together. <clears throat> Today we observe those. We investigate them. We discover them. We don't create them. And we have a difficult time even comprehending what they mean. The November 3rd issue of Newsweek was devoted to a story entitled, When Galaxies Collide. Perhaps you saw it. It talks about the Hubble Space Telescope and the amazing things that have been unveiled, revealed, discovered by this telescope. I think of all of the things in my lifetime that have astounded me and, and thrilled me. The Hubble Space Telescope would be one of the five or maybe ten things that just stand out to me. As we're able to get out into space on a platform, as it were, and then look into the heavens, away from the distortion of the atmosphere. I quote from Time Magazine, when it, or excuse me, Newsweek Magazine, when it says, the space telescope showed that galaxies, the 50 billion collections of stars, gas, and dust that speckle the universe like beacons in a dark sea, are not the isolated static structures they were once thought to be. Instead, they collide and merge and cannibalize each other, fade and flare and change shape like flubber. This is a huge revolution in thought, says astrophysicist Alan Dressler of the Carnegie Observatories in Pasadena, California. We all believe that galaxies look the same for all time, but they don't. The Hubble Space Telescope, by telling us about how galaxies formed and evolved, is telling us something about how we got here. It's amazing that humans could learn that. Well, not really. But he thinks so because he doesn't accept what God has said about how we got here. He goes on to say, 
They can, they can tell us this because the Space Telescope, orbiting some 370 miles above the Earth, has provided Earthlings with front row seats for some of the grandest shows the universe has staged. It has brought us spectaculars in our own backyard, like Comet Shoemaker-Levy pummeling Jupiter in 1994, as well as fireworks far, far away, like the black hole at the center of galaxy M87, slurping up surrounding matter. It has found exploding stars, supernovas, blowing celestial smoke rings, and pillars of creation trillions of miles high where stars are being born. The thing that is so amazing, says astronomer, astronomer Mario Livio of the Telescope Institute, is that literally every place HST has looked, it has found something fantastic. He says, of all the secrets that the Hubble has unlocked, its images of galaxies that formed when the universe was in its infancy would be at the top of my list of its achievements, says one astrophysicist. The images in the Hubble deep field, the deep field means the furthest reaches into the universe. He says, the images in the Hubble deep field appear as they were roughly 11.7 billion to 10. 4 billion years ago. What do these objects look like today? Only an astronomer 10 billion years in the future will know. That's, of course, because light, we think, travels at a certain speed, and therefore we measure what we think the distances of the universe are. But then the article goes on to say, the second surprise from the deep field is that the universe's lights, listen to this, contrary to astronomers' hunch, turned on in one great burst. It was as if every chandelier in a mansion were flicked on simultaneously on a moonless night. Did you hear that? It says the second surprise from the deep field is that the universe's lights turned on in one great burst. You almost get the idea that someone might have said, let there be light, <laughs> right? Marvelous things we're discovering with this Hubble Space Telescope. Now, whatever the times and the distances, the pictures coming back are truly fantastic. It's difficult for our minds to grasp the enormity of these galaxies that we are seeing. But my friend, the Messiah, Jesus, is the one who created all of this. He's the one who holds together everything that's out there. He is the one who said, let there be light. And the chandeliers of God's mansion, as it were, came on. That is an attribute of deity. It belongs to him who is our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Not only stand apart from the creation, because he's the one who founded it, it says, but in our text it also suggests that Christ stands apart from change. You and I look out there at the universe, and we marvel that our Lord Jesus looked at that same moon, so beautiful in its fullness, in its brilliance. He prayed underneath that moon. He looked up at it. 
perhaps waved to it, because he put it there. But then we think of David, who lived before that, or we think of Moses, hundreds of years before David. And they all looked up at that same moon and wondered at its beauty. They lived under the same stars that we look at. Job talks about the constellations that we still know today by the same names that he used. And so we look at these heavenly bodies and we think of them as changeless, but that is not the case. In fact, it says here they will perish. All of them will wear out like a garment. Now, it's difficult for us to see that because our lifetimes are so brief. And the distances of space seem to be so enormous that it's difficult for us to see and observe these changes ourselves. But we're able to see it through the HST. In fact, uh, the scientists had this to say in the article that I quoted from earlier. The Milky Way is closing in on the Andromeda galaxy at 300,000 miles per hour. The Andromeda, of course, is the closest galaxy to us. And it says that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is moving toward Andromeda at that enormous speed of 300,000 miles an hour. Now, don't exactly get worried about that at this point in your life, because the Andromeda is 2.2 million light years away. That means it's 13 billion billion miles away. And so it's going to take about 5 billion years for this collision to occur. Your life insurance will long have expired by that time. And it says, since galaxies are mostly dust and gas, the collision will not be like ricocheting billiard balls. Instead, when the two galaxies are upon one another, the two cold clouds of gas in the Milky Way, or excuse me, the cold clouds of gas in the Milky Way will be compressed like those in the antenna, another galaxy, and millions of new stars will ignite. The Milky Way's flat disk on the outer fringes of which our sun and nine planets orbit will be ripped apart. Eventually, Andromeda will plunge into the heart of the Milky Way, triggering a 4th of July finale of starbursts. And then the two galaxies, originally shaped like pinwheels, will be one shaped like an egg. Now, as I say, don't wait for this to happen, because this is a long time in the future. But what, what we're saying is that, indeed, scientists are confirming that even our own galaxy someday will change. The heavens are wearing out. They're getting like an old garment that grows thin with age. Even the Bible says that the creation is not lasting, that it's going to be done away with. Peter writes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. I imagine ancient people scratched their heads when they saw these words, and they said, how could this be? God must light a match or something. But we know today that all God has to do is to release the energy that is in a few atoms. It'll take care of this problem. In fact, what is described here is very much like an atomic explosion, isn't it? 
since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away. And the apostle John stood at a certain place in the time spectrum, and he said, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Now my point is this, that we look at the heavens as a symbol of that which is unchanging. It represents in our thinking very often what is constant. But the Bible says not so. There is change going on even now in the heavens, and someday the heavens as we know them will be burned up. They will be destroyed. But Christ is unchanging. All of these things, it says, will perish. They'll wear out like a garment, but thou dost endure, says the psalmist about Christ. He says in verse 27, thou art the same. Literally, he says, thou art he. The idea is, I think Luther captures it well in his translation, thou abidest as thou art. In other words, the Lord, the Christ of God, always remains the same. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us this is true. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and yes, forever. Now that cannot be said of any mere man. We humans are frail. We are a part of this universe that is changing, that is passing away. We are created. We are inseparably linked to this created and fallen order. We are mortal, as we saw in our study in 1 Corinthians 15. But not so of the Christ. He not only stands apart from creation, he brought all of it into existence, but he stands apart from the change that is occurring within his creation. He does not age. He neither grows nor is diminished in wisdom or understanding. <clears throat> all knowledge is always his. He is never weakened by time. Being eternal and being the source of all knowledge, he has no need or capacity to be enhanced or to be refined or to be augmented or to progress or evolve in any respect whatsoever. And as you may know, today, the theory of evolution is being applied to theology like it has been to biology. And there are theologians telling us that God is changing and evolving with time. Baloney. God does not change. And his son, the Christ, is likewise unchanging. And so in this messianic text that we've looked at, in this carol of the Christ, we observe two attributes of deity and deity only. They are that God is eternal, 
and that God is immutable. He is not a part of the creation. He is apart from time. He is eternal. And he stands apart from the change that occurs in the creation. He is immutable, unchanging. And we have seen that these attributes belong to Jesus Christ. He is eternal. He is not created. He is the creator. He has always been. He will forever be. He is the I am. And he is immutable. He is constant. He is unchanging. And that is very good news for us. Let me tell you why. The Jewish background for this term, anointed one, I've already suggested. It was used in three offices of the Jewish people, that of prophet, priest, and king. Our eternal, immutable Christ fills each of those offices in a unique sense. Christ is the anointed prophet. Therefore, his promises stand forever. It means that the one who loved us and who gave himself for us and who loves us forever will never change in that respect. He has promised us the gift of his own existence, his own endless existence, and we share that eternal life. Because Christ is the anointed prophet and his promises stand forever, you and I can rest with assurance that our soul's destiny are fixed. He has said, I love you with an everlasting love. Jesus himself said, I give eternal life to them, my sheep, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Who said that? Christ, the eternal, immutable, anointed prophet. His promises must stand. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but what? My words shall not pass away. Christ is the anointed prophet. Secondly, Christ is the anointed priest. The priest of ancient Israel was also anointed. Christ is the anointed priest. And his prayers prevail forever. Forever. Think of that. The writer of Hebrews says, It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to dip into this a little further in a coming week. But my point is here this morning is that Jesus Christ has been anointed as the high priest of an eternal order of priests. He is a priest forever. He is such not because he descended from a certain tribe of Israel, like the Levitical priests, but he is this priest because of the power 
of an indestructible life that he has in his resurrection. And so he will always represent us before the Father. He will always be before the Father's throne there on our behalf. And he prays for you. I thank God for the many people in this church who pray for me. It means a great deal to me. And there are some who pray for me and for my family and for other pastoral staff and for the leaders of our church every day. That's invaluable. I thank God for that. But let me tell you, there's, there's one who prays even more than that for me and for you. And that is the Lord Jesus, the anointed priest. Therefore, we can choose to believe that all of our circumstances are providential. There's nothing that befalls me in my life that has not first passed through the screen of his prayers for me. Do I face some disappointment today? Have I experienced a loss? Is my life in danger because of some disease? Is my security threatened? Whatever it be in my circumstances, it comes from him. His prayers have gone before the events of my life, forging them, shaping them, determining that all things will work together for my good. He is my high priest my Christ. He's yours too. Not only is he the anointed prophet and the anointed priest, he is the anointed king. Jesus Christ as the eternal, immutable one is the anointed king. His power rules forever. In Revelation we read these words, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That is his kingdom. And you and I, who are in his family, who have trusted him, are already citizens in that kingdom that is forever. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom, therefore we need to live like it and determine to live for what is significant. How easy it is for us to live for what is self-fulfilling. How easy it is to focus upon that which is personally rewarding because everyone else in our culture does that. How easy it is to, to live for what is popular, but how significant it is to live for what advances his eternal kingdom. What a great way to bring focus and direction to our lives, to determine that this week my number one priority is going to be to live with kingdom values for kingdom purposes. Because the Christ, who is eternal and immutable, is the king of that kingdom, and I'm one of his subjects. And when I choose to live for that kingdom, I'm living for what is truly significant. So do you see how important it is, what we've talked about, that Jesus, the Christ, is eternal and unchanging. We're part of an unchanging kingdom. We're part of a, a priesthood that is eternal and unchanging. 
We have promises that will be fulfilled, that cannot change. An Eastern monarch was one time brought his counselors before him, and he asked them, formulate a statement of wisdom that will be true in all times and in all circumstances. And so the counselors went back and they began to think and to write and to come up with some proverb that would be eternally true. And this is what they came back to him with. It is just this little statement. And this, too, shall pass away. You think about that. Is it a blessing? This, too, will pass away. Is it a disappointment? This, too, will pass away. Is it life itself? This, too, will pass away. That is a statement of wisdom for this world. But, friends, you and I, having trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, are part of a kingdom. We have a relationship with one who is forever. And that gives our lives significance that is beyond this time and beyond this world. Let's pray together. Father, if we are living for things of this world, devoting our energies to what is passing away already, then show us that. Convict us of that terrible waste. And show us how living in a world that is passing away, we can also live for what is eternal and reorder the priorities of our lives, I pray. Reorder them so that we will live for what lasts and what is significant. I don't know how that may apply to your life. I know how it applies to mine. May God help us to determine today to live for those things that belong to the kingdom of our Christ. Lord Jesus, eternal God, unchanging deity, we worship you. And we give ourselves to be fully devoted followers of you. And as we go from here into the rest of this day and into the new week before us, may we glorify and bring honor to you, our prophet, our priest, and our eternal king. Amen.